Welcome back to Behind the Screens. I'm Simon Burton from Numero. I'm Ryan Preventure from Movio. And I'm Matthew Liebman from Vista Group. How are you, gents? Did you get out to see Black Panther this weekend? No, not yet. I did not, but I will definitely be seeing it during the Thanksgiving week. I was in a very full auditorium in Auckland and it was great to see. Um, what did we see? The box office is up about 259% on prior week. Um, and it kind of felt like it down here as well. It's amazing what a good film can do to the, the health of the industry. Yeah, terrific, Matthew. Why don't we jump into the box office for this weekend with Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Uh, clearly the number one film around the world this this past weekend, uh, grossing a total of 330 million US dollars globally, 181 million uh, domestically and 150 million internationally. Um, breaking that down into the different regions of the world, about 66 million from Europe, uh, 52 million in APAC and a tick over 30 million from Latin America. So a genuine global release for Black Panther Wakanda Forever this past weekend. Looking at the top few markets internationally, we saw a $15 million result in the UK, France, 14 million, Mexico, 13 million, Korea, number four with 9 million and Brazil rounding at the top five with $7 million. Uh, second rank, ranked film, Black Adam globally, uh, crossed the $200 million mark internationally and crossed the $350 million mark globally, uh, adding an additional $10 million from 76 markets this past weekend. So before we take a look at the audience who rocked up to see Black Panther Wakanda Forever, why don't we dive a little bit further into the domestic grosses this past weekend. Uh, as we said, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, $181 million in North America, which is the second largest opening for 2022 behind Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness. Interestingly, the first Black Panther held number one position for five weeks. So we'll see how this one goes, uh, if it can can mirror that effort. Uh, I think it'll certainly have a, a pretty strong hold. So we'll see whether the total gross ends up for, for Black Panther Wakanda forever. Uh, in second position in the domestic market, we had Black Adam with a pretty solid hold, only a drop of 53%, taking 8.6 million this past weekend. But in the face of, of Black Panther opening, uh, pretty solid hold there for, for Black Adam. Uh, and in third position, Ticket to Paradise, taking $6.1 million and only a 29% drop there from the previous weekend. Uh, but Ryan, why don't we dive in and take a look at the audience makeup for Black Panther Wakanda Forever? Sure. Well, when we look at the comps, the comps are what you would exactly expect for this type of movie. It was Doctor Strange, the sequel, the most recent Thor, Love and Thunder, Black Adam, Eternal, Spider-Man, Shang-Chi and the Legend of Ten Rings, Avengers Endgame, and of course, the original Black Panther. The choice here in kind of looking at the comparing the films, we actually chose Thor here uh, just to look at it as a pandemic film as opposed to kind of comparing to the original Black Panther, which was four years ago. Some of the things to look at here was the ticket purchases were slightly lower for this one compared to Thor, 42% to 46%. But what was I thought really interesting was the five plus tickets was at 11% for Black Panther Wakanda Forever compared to 7% for Thor. So people went out in groups, pretty large groups here, 
more often. And I think that's a that's a good sign when people decide that, hey, I'm not just going to bring my friend or my spouse to this movie. I want to go as a group. I want this to be a, a group experience. I think that's that's also pretty good for the legs the film hopefully will have in the weeks to come. Age ranges were pretty much exactly the same as you'd expect with Wakanda Forever and, and Thor. And gender was the same. Uh, some reports are saying that women over the age of 25 were, were a little bit higher than the original Black Panther. Uh, that is a good sign that an older audience is coming out to see this film. So always a good thing to see that there. And if you're comparing Black, Black Panther Wakanda Forever to Thor, as you can imagine, uh, that the African-American audience was 24% to 13% for Thor. That sort of makes sense with Caucasians at 40% compared to 54% for Thor. Again, these are fantastic numbers. And just one kind of side note to what uh, Simon's report, this is the biggest November opening of all time by about 30 something million. So this is a this is a really nice effort. And we could have the biggest December opening of all time with Avatar, which would be a great way to, to end the year. Yeah, and if that happens, um, Avatar will beat Spider-Man uh, No Way Home. So it'll be a post-pandemic film beating a post-pandemic film for the December record, which will be which will be nice. Um, having seen Black Panther: Wakanda Forever, it really is a female-led movie, um, not just uh, the the main character, but every lead is female. So uh, hopefully that then makes this a really uh, balanced, gender-oriented movie because the action and the Marvel cachet will bring the guys in. We'll see that hold for the five weeks you were talking, Simon, all the way through to um, Avatar on uh, December 16. Gents, we're going to take a slightly different approach to the interview. Um, I got to speak to Steve Nibbs, who's the managing director and deputy CEO of View, uh, one of the, the largest cinema circuits throughout Europe. And he's such an expert with such a wealth of experience over three and a bit decades that uh, the conversation was fantastic, but went for about 50 minutes. So we're going to split it into a two-parter. Here's my first part um, of the interview with Steve Nibbs from VIEW. Steve Nibbs is one of the industry's most experienced executives with 35 years in cinema exhibition. He spent 16 years with United Cinemas International, or UCI, and its forebear AMC, ultimately becoming the senior VP of Northern Europe. Next year marks his 20th anniversary with VIEW, he joined back in 2003 as COO and is now Group MD and Deputy CEO. In addition to his day-to-day -day achievements, Steve was the first exhibitor appointed to the board of the UK Film Council. He's been on the executive board of the UK Cinema Exhibitors Association, which also awarded him the Exhibition Achievement Award in 2017. And at the most recent Cine Europe, Steve was awarded the International Exhibitor of the Year. I'm really grateful that you've been able to spare some time, uh, Steve, especially as the first Wakanda Forever Grocers come in. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Matt. Great. Nice to see you too as well and talk to you. Hey, look, so after 35 years in the industry and 20 of them with view, what are the biggest changes you've seen in exhibition and, and what are some of the things that have remained the same? I think um, it's funny looking back at things um, as a, God, somebody called me a veteran the other day and I, I almost had a heart <laughs> attack because <laughs> uh, I don't feel myself that way because you kind of, you go through life and you do your job and you, you experience, you know, some fantastic things and then suddenly you realise, God, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, but I think, do you know what, one of the things whenever I think about this question is, is that I think sometimes, and this is kind of a theme, I think, through some of the, the things that we'll probably chat about later, which is um, after three and a half, 
decades. I think one of the things that people forget about is where we came from when I started in the 80s at the point in Milton Keynes. I mean, up, up until that point, cinema was almost a rounding error in people's leisure time and thoughts. They might go to the cinema. I mean, in the UK, which was my first market, um, cinema going was at like less than an average of one time per year per head of population. And it was just becoming, cinemas were closing, they were opening. And the word that was used to describe a cinema at that time was a flea pit. They were poorly managed and just, you know, your feet stuck to the floor and the times were all on the day, people smoked. I mean, it was just like a different world. And everything. So I think sometimes we forget, you know, kind of where we we, we kind of came from. Um, and I, um, so I think that sweep, that whole, ch- the biggest change has been, to make multiplexes have made modern purpose-built you know buildings called multiplexes which i've always referred to as cinemas because that's what they are you know um have reinvented and reinvigorated a whole industry the film industry would not be where it is today without that successful rollout of um, modern multiplex cinemas around the world um, and i think sometimes that gets lost as people are sort of looking back on things. Um, so I just make that general point. Um, but I think um, there's, there's obviously, whenever, again, you get asked this question, there's an obvious um, pointer here, which is the change from analog to digital. That single thing, I think, you know, that 2008 to 2000 and sort of 10, 11, 12 period, that four, five year period, when it literally the whole world changed from 35 millimeter prints. Um, and that gave us, you know, um, you moved from our projectionists were always proud of the quality, but physics gets in the way and dust and prints and prints that are moved around the world as they went on their journey from the starting in the States. So people forget all of that. So you could be watching if something had been on screen for, and it wasn't uncommon in those days as well for things to play for six months plus in a cinema, um, basically with the same print in lots of cases. Um, and you know you could be the best projectionist in the world, but that print is going to degrade over time. Now digital just gives you that quality that what what you're seeing at week or day twenty or whatever it is the quality that the the filmmaker made the film in. And again, I think we take that for granted, and it's pristine quality, absolutely fantastic. You, we we've got to do our job as exhibitors to make sure that it's shown with the right light levels and the sound quality and all of that, which is obviously a, our bread and butter. Um, but if those things are all all correct, then the quality is 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 knockout. The other thing that digital did as well is it just massively increased the range of things that you know that we can show. It's much easier to put onto your your servers a whole bunch of different films um, and genres and all sorts of things that have increased what um, a cinema can watch. There's less. There's more, much more crossover between what would be regarded as art house, and, and we we show just about everything these days. I don't think, you know, I I really rail against people, you know, the art house kind of thing. I think cinema is, you know, can if you're a great cinema an operator, you'll you'll match the demographic of your audience. But you know, just doing things like you know, as well as film, theatre, sports, we're we're showing the World Cup in some of our places. We just did the Queen Elizabeth II funeral, which was. We showed that in the UK as well, which um, in a lot of our sites, the live feed. And that was an amazing community service. We didn't charge. We opened up put one screen and allowed people to come together. So which I think was, you know, it, it helps people experience something together. 
I think the advent of digital is my single biggest win, winner by some measure, I think. Yeah. A, cl- a good second for me in recent years has been the recliner seat as well. I just love recliner seats, I have to say. I just yeah, me are. too. Our seats were always good and we had plenty of leg room and all of that, but I do think the recliners take the whole um, in auditorium experience to another level now. So they are really, really cool and great. I love them. Brilliant. Yeah. There's an elegance that comes with it as well as the comfort. Totally agree. Totally agree. Just And you see when people walk in, particularly when we've refurbished somewhere that's been you know roughly the same for the last 10, 50, maybe even 20 years, and it's like opening a new cinema in a market. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, they're not cheap, but then you've got to look after them. But I think it just sets a new benchmark for what's acceptable for cinema going in, you know, in most places now. Really, really transformational. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd like to take that a little further. Um, I was seeing in an article recently when you were on a panel at Cine Europe, you've mentioned that cinema is a premium experience. And I think we do a danger by describing certain screens as, as premium. So I was wondering, Within the view family or the view environment, what is a premium experience? Because I have seen different definitions. Everyone has their own spin on it. Yeah, I think um, when I was, I, I, I did say that. And uh, um, I think it may have got a little bit lost in translation, possibly what, I'm, what I'm, I meant was that I was making the point that um, it depends what you compare things to. And my cinema, for me, the, the experience of going to a cinema is the premium way to watch a film as was made by the filmmaker. Now, there are lots of films that some, you know, filmmakers make things um, these days on, on all sorts of digital um, tools and things. And you can, you know, somebody will make something experimental and you can watch it on your phone or your iPad or your screen at home or whatever. But when a film is made for a, a for an audience, a large audience, um, the filmmaker is making it to be seen on that, that, that screen in a, um, in a cinema, and I think that experience of going into a dark room, the lights going down, you know, the film comes up, recliner seat or or you know a night a good quality standard seat or a VIP seat, whatever it is, that is the premium film watching experience. It's better to do it that way than any other way to watch a film. So for me, cinema is the, has always been the gold standard for watching a film. And my problem with picking out the word premium to um, uh, premium large format, for example, it says that everything else that is not one of those is a lesser quality. And I don't agree with that. I think that sends the wrong general message that certain films should only be seen in this format. And that that's not right. I think it demeans and puts down the great quality of the other, other alternatives. You can have just as an amazing relationship with watching something on film in a small 40 or 50 seat auditorium it doesn't always have to be four or 500 seats with you know a huge huge screen you can have it's your relationship that you have with what you're watching um and some films play well so you know do i think watching top gun on the biggest screen that you can find whether it's premium format or just the largest screen is the best way to watch that yes i do do i think um triangle of sadness which i watched the other day needs that no i don't it's a different more so just a different experience what they both need is an audience to really elevate them and um, when you've got an audience in a really well-run nice auditorium it's an, an amazing experience so i i was making the point that i think cinema and going and we we fight for parts of that of, of, of that pie 
Um, and we don't always think together collectively as, a, as an industry about the messages that we're sending by putting labels on things, um, I think can be counter um, counterproductive sometimes. So that's the point that I was, I was making about that. That makes a lot of sense. And it's something that I've not heard said, I don't think ever before. It, it almost talks about the baseline is premium and everything else is better than premium, not, not start at average and, and option up. Yeah, I look at it the other the other way around. Most people um, experience their cinema going in what you would call what if you take premiums being what's well, the best, and then everything else is standard. It's not as good. I, I don't think that's the case at all. I think our job is to make all of our auditoriums great. I mean, we've we've built black boxes and put VIP seats in for for twenty years. We've always and the thing that we've always concentrated on is offering people choice. I think it's really really important. To choice you don't corral them into saying well this is the only way to watch it people want to do different things at different times sometimes you want to sit with your family and um at the middle of the auditorium sometimes you want to be on your own at the back or the front you might want to sit in a vip seat you might have wanted to watch something on a premium large format another time it's all about choice um all of those experiences should be regarded as being they're great and we should all aspire to offering great um uh, projection and sound and seat and service quality and all of those screens that's kind of my that's my aspiration yeah fantastic so you did touch on service we spent a lot of time so far talking about seat screen and sound and you know being a bit of a news junkie and industry junkie one of the trends i've seen amongst analysts and observers and critics and, and these are the people cheering for cinema not the ones um you know uh, incorrectly saying it's dying but these general statements that the experience is sometimes a letdown and they're not talking about facilities or the movie they're talking about cleanliness and courtesy and cues you know some of the basics how would you respond to that and how does view ensure that you give that great end-to-end -end experience beyond the facilities in the movie yeah it's a really really good question and um i think um because when, when i read a lot of commentary and um you kindly sent me some of the ones that you were referring to and i read those and they back to some of the ones that I'd read as well. I kind of think of it, um, the comments that people make about the cinema going experience, I think generally I've noticed they fall into three categories. You have people who comment on, you get commentary on the aesthetics of um, how things look, and that's a very personal thing. It's very often an artistic sort of point of view as well. And I actually think I tie that word in with nostalgia as well. There's what the theme that tends to come through. And, and there's a bit of a craving when people write about cinema going, they're, they're, they're backward looking. And it's really interesting because I've spent my life forward looking. And I, as I said at the start, I was part of, um, worked with people um, in Europe and from, from North America um, and other parts of the world as well, but um, mostly Europe, um, who were all into creating something new and modern and forward looking that met the demands of the modern world um and i think there's there's this craving a bit with some a lot of commentators about the the different era of filmmaking a different era of cinema going it's almost like stuck in aspic in a 1930s 40s 50s americana almost kind of, of thing um but i'm really not that i'm not that interested in that if i'm honest um and um i may be a bit of a heretic in that, in that respect but i i like modern clean bright well you know well run i mean you can still have great aesthetics in those and they can feel warm and welcoming spaces um 
And it, it's funny, actually, because um, one of the things that gets mentioned a lot is curtains. I've never understood this obsession with curtains. Now, I say this as an operator because they're a bloody nightmare. Um, and we had them for years and years um, when I first started, but they went out pretty quickly. Um, but there was, I, I do understand this point about when it opens and you're kind of drawn into the world. But I think there are lots of ways of, of doing that. And for me, I actually use that as an example of this, this backward-looking sort of thing. Um, I think when they're done well and done, they can be absolutely you know, beautiful um, and well done. But it, it, for me, it talks about what was instead of what would we like something to be. But especially when you come in, you know, a lot of theatres, you come in through the front of the auditorium. There are some that come through the back, but that seems less so. And you come in and there's this massive screen in front of you, as opposed to something that's hidden. That's got a wow factor as well. And it's really interesting because we, we do research and surveys, have done for all of, I use research a lot to help signpost the way, you know, what we should be looking at, what people are thinking. Use a lot of research. I respect research an awful lot. Curtains never, ever, 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 ever come up, ever. And they only come up from commentators who live and breathe cinema, and I get all of that. But for most people, that's not how they consume cinema. It's not how they think about it. They think about the experience about getting through, um, getting their ticket, getting their food and drink. How do they feel about this? What are the experiences like? And then sitting down and the screen should be clean and bright and, and then the, the show starts. And, it, and in fact, most people these days when they come in, we could put up all sorts of things on the screen and all that kind of thing. People are not interested in that. They're chatting to their friends and they're on their phones. 99% of people are doing something else. They're getting themselves settled. And what we do is when we when our thing comes on, it signals the start that something's coming with a bright kind of start with our show and everything. And that's like the door. It's like the dinner bell ringing almost. And you, you then start to see the audience over time as the trailers and the ads play that settle down. And then by the time the film comes on, they're fully immersed into, you know, a, a world that is that's going to keep them entertained for hopefully for the next 90 minutes or in the case of Avatar two uh, for three hours, 10 minutes. Three hours, um, 10, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, the, and the other thing that I find, so, that, so the aesthetics I think is one thing. The other one is this whole thing about um, technology um, as well and technology working. I completely agree with this. Um, our job as operators is to make sure that that technology, the light levels, um, the sound levels um, that people comment on. I mean, what people come for is to see a pristine picture you know, film experience. Um, that's our job. And if we're not matching up to that and people are commentating on it, we, we're, do, we're not doing something as well as we should be. Um, we, we've just actually, be, um, with Avatar coming up and um, we've really been thinking about 3D at, um, uh, with Avatar again about that relaunching, we've really put a lot of effort into our light levels, just checking every single screen in the circuit. Um, it, they, were, they, were, they were good. They were okay to good anyway. But we've really put a lot of effort into that with um, with our technical team, um, and um, and because we're a company, we're a corporate company, a group company across European territories, um, we can set a standard that works everywhere and make sure that standard is followed through in all of our territories. And we measure the light levels every week, and they're all fed in, and we can keep an eye on it. So um, I think you have to make sure that your technology is right. And then the third. Um, uh, point that people always talk about that was the, really at the bottom of your question um, is about service and about how people are and I think actually this is 
probably our greatest challenge right now. And particularly after the pandemic, which has disrupted the world of work like nothing has, has ever done, in, certainly in my lifetime. And we've lost a huge amount of staff and experience. People, even though we were paying people, we didn't make any redundant. We looked after people. A third of our managers and a third of our teams in most of our church, not everywhere, left the industry and went and did other things. Some of them have returned now because stacking shelves and being a manager in the supermarkets not the same as managing a cinema. So we have, we've had some people come back. But um, I think that getting, attracting great people, looking after them, retaining them, you know, trying to get people who love films and like going to the cinema themselves is a good start, but also people who want to be in a customer service environment as well. And that's really, really tough these days. I think, you know, I, um, I had some time off earlier this year and um, I was in Canada, I was in Europe, I was in Turkey, I was in the UK traveling around quite a bit. And every high street in every country I went into um, on my travels had signs up, um, not open today, only opening six days or five days because we haven't got enough people. Um, yep, I same Brexit, down here. Yeah, I think Brexit in the UK has made it more difficult for us, um, but that people are having that same experience in all of our markets um, where people have gone, whether it's students who've gone back home and not come back, whatever it is, some, something has definitely changed and made it much more challenging to get um, staff and everything. And it doesn't matter whether you're a bar, a cafe, a restaurant, a hotel, people have got signs that people hear the same thing when I go to, you know, conventions and speak to people in other industries. You know, it's, um, it's really, really tough, I think. And that's made that bit of our job, I think, more challenging, particularly when it's very busy, um, because we are suboptimal on, you know, the number of people that we need right now. Um, and we trying really and we are we're having to change how we retain how we think about people how we recruit um and all that's you know all that sort of thing yeah well one of the things that that was happening before the pandemic but i think has accelerated is the emergence of more self-service so um uh, kiosks uh, web apps that sort of thing for for transactions pass-through style concessions um and so on one of the things I've seen that, that kind of took me by surprise by how quickly it's progressing is robotics and quick service restaurants, which, you know, have some parallels to cinema. So um, I don't know whether you've seen this, but there is a company that is leasing French fry robots for um, quick service restaurants like Jack in the Box, 30,000 a year. It's less than a full time equivalent um, uh, human. And then, uh, you know, one of our, our clients in the US we spoke to. Flix Brewhouse has robots that are running food from the kitchen to uh, auditoriums, being a dine-in. Uh, and then, you know, we have um, Amazon Fresh-style stores where you just walk out. And I've seen less technologically advanced but similar philosophies in some con uh, concessions and candy bars down in this part of the world. So how are you thinking about the balance of staff service and potentially greater automation than there is today to, to address the issues you just talked about? I think uh, it's um, front and centre for us, I think. And and it's actually part of an evolving natural trend. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, one of the things that COVID did on a plus point is it changed how people see their cinema visit and how they book as well. So on average, pre-pandemic, 35% of all of our bookings were through, the, through our app or through our uh, our mobile or our, our website and that's now 
the average is double that now and it's it hasn't gone back down as well so it's stuck so how people choose what they come and see and how they then book has changed fundamentally forever and that's in all of our markets it's only just a matter of how high up that sort of tree they are at the moment um but that leads you then to have a different relationship with your audience and with with each individual customer because you know more about them but it's also made us think as well about how will what will the foyer and the cinema experience of the future so if i was if steve nibs was opening a new cinema tomorrow um you would walk into an open space you probably wouldn't see it you would see a counter for some things um everything would be on your phone no cash the building would know you were there um so if you bought a ticket and all you want to again a lot of this is about choice for me and i think people think well it's a really bad thing that no, nobody somebody may just want to come in go and watch a film and leave and never speak to anybody some people want to do that and that's fine and you know you don't have to have a ticket tear the building will know you're sat in the right seat if you're sat in the wrong seat then we can come and ask you to your seats over here and make sure you're in the right sort of screen and everything um uh, and then there are people that want to fill up with you know popcorn and and coke and nachos and ice cream and all those things that people want to they might want a slice of pizza or whatever it is um, and that range i think will continue to grow but it becomes more of rather than going to a counter it becomes more of a grazing um and walk through you know an experience in the foyer and again taking what amazon fresh and now other supermarket and food chains have done again you don't need to go to a till the app will will know what what you've got and then you can go straight through into your auditorium or you can pre-book um and your food and drink will be waiting on the seat for you when you get in um again and our staff and and i think there are i think we will see and have we certainly want to have more staff who are let doing less processing but more engagement with the customers who want to have engagement one of the greatest things that we could all achieve is to get rid of queues uh, that that would be our goal which no queues and people find it very easy to go and get what they want um and i think you do have to offer a, a service option for people who want it but a lot of people are very comfortable in helping themselves and i know some people again commentators write this down as a negative um that it's soulless and all that kind of thing i don't think it has to be i think it's how you staff it it's how you interact with people it's how you guide people um through to their through the thing and then it should be self-evident when you come in but technology will allow you to do all of that we could do that today pretty much i think using a lot of you know vistas technology we could and we, we've obviously had the conversation with kimberly and everybody about all of this and, and misha we could do all of this and we're really keen to get on with and test all of those things um uh so yeah i think technology will play a huge part in changing the the look and feel of the the cinema experience um and i think the main thing that will go will be which has been prevalent in the multiplex day one is the counter um and i, th I think eventually you will see that it will go as it you know and eventually very efficient and very good but i think you'll you'll have a more relaxed less queue a more interactive kind of experience i think using technology yeah we were tossing around in the office the other day a, a scenario that you know when you do scenarios you go to the extreme but what if cinemas no longer had any transactional point of sale hardware yeah, of their own totally in the theater yeah. and then you can think of the footprint of the foyer that has construction cost implications it has rent implications the layout you were talking about 
And I think in some ways it even helps the staffing challenges you were talking about because the people you're hiring aren't basically human robots, they're concierges and that's got to be more satisfying way to spend your day. And I totally agree with that. I mean, you, you still have to clean auditoriums. You still have to do those process things. Um, but there are, there are different jobs and, um, and you get diff- different people to, you know, to do those jobs within, with, you know, in, inside the cinema. But I totally agree. I think, um, you know, there are some people who crave that face-to-face interaction and want to ask 10 questions. And there are other people who are very comfortable coming in, getting their Coke and their popcorn, and they just want to watch the film and are happy doing that. And I think we need to cater to all of those needs. Yeah, I mean, I look at parallel industries and it's a, it's a bit of a stretch in some ways, but supermarkets here at least are almost 50-50 between uh, somebody checking you out as a human and self-checkout. And it feels like a similar headspace, albeit in a more entertaining environment at the cinema. It's that choice and, and option. The, the thing for me, and again, this is something I've found um, post-pandemic, the amount of stuff that doesn't work at the moment is like, depressing actually whether it's transport or whether it's going you know buying something or it's just there's a lot of stuff that just things don't work as they used to and maybe it's because i'm getting older as well matt but um <laughs> but I, I think the use of technology it, it has to be reliable it has to work i i don't need it to do everything for me but the stuff that i do use it for and we would use it for as a business it has to work it has to be reliable it has to work 365 you know days of the year and it has to be affordable as well because that point you were making about there's a lot of investment that you could do in this area um and that's going to be very challenging because post pandemic we're all still repairing our profit and loss accounts and we're definitely repairing our balance sheets and uh, that's going to continue for a, a while now so i think these changes will come but they're probably going to be a bit slower than we're used to moving at i think um possibly yeah yeah, yeah. Well, next weekend, hopefully we'll see a small drop for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. We do have one wide release this coming week, which is She Said, and the menu is opening limited to hopefully a a pretty great per theater opening. Excellent. So thank you for joining us, gents. We'll play the second part of Steve Nibb's interview next week. Uh, Until then, uh, have a good week, and we look forward to seeing you then behind the screens. Movio and Numero are two of the businesses within the Vista Group, the world-leading provider of technology solutions to the global film industry. For more moviegoer insights, be sure to visit movio.co and follow Movio, Numero and Vista Group on Twitter and LinkedIn. The Behind the Screens podcast is produced by Grace Furness and edited by Patrick Hanna.